I want you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. I want us to pray together and ask God to breathe on His Word again for us as we enter into worship through the reading and teaching of His Word. I believe that God wants to make it come alive for us. Not just a good thought, not just a nugget of truth, but something living and active that will bear fruit in our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your presence in worship today. We sense that you are drawing us near to you. Lord, on this Father's Day, we've already declared that we don't just honor our dads here on earth, though we're thankful for them. We honor you, our Heavenly Father, the perfect Father. Lord, I pray that you will challenge us as men today to be transparent and reflect your goodness to those around us. Lord, I pray that you'll help each of us, whether we're men or women, to see our role in passing on our faith in you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen and amen. As you hold Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1 in your hands, we'll be there in just a minute. But I want to direct our attentions to a message I entitled, Dads in Demand. The Fort Wayne Community School District has put their finger on the problem that they have identified outside of religious studies that the absence of positive male role models in the school has had a direct influence, in their opinion, on the decline of not only grades, but behavior and so many other things in the lives of their students. That they started a program and instituted a program called Watchdog Dads. Their desire was just to get positive male role models in the lives of students in school again to help them in their role of educating kids. And their criteria to be a watchdog dad was not that you even had your own biological child, but that you were a male, you passed a background check, and you're willing to get involved in some student's life. I want to challenge us today that men, whether you are a father of a biological child or not, there is somebody around you that desperately needs you to be a father spiritually to them. Women, there is somebody who is watching you and God is calling you to pass on your faith in Jesus Christ to them. Successful parenting is one of the most challenging yet least appreciated occupations today. Dr. James Dobson reminds us in this title of his excellent book, Parenting Isn't for Cowards, that this job of a parent takes bravery, it takes guts, it's something you intentionally do. Except for a few days of the year like Father's Day, the value of fatherhood and its job is greatly underestimated and often taken for granted. It's kind of like the father who suggested that his family get him a gift for Father's Day that the whole family could enjoy. So the family put their heads together and they said, what can we give dad that every one of us would enjoy? Let's give dad a new wallet. We all want to enjoy dad's wallet. He could open up and give to us. It reminds me of the story that, uh, of a, a pastor's daughter. Uh, this pastor has a daughter, and this story kind of warmed my heart. Of, of a little girl, her dad was a pastor, and it was time for her to go to bed, and she was having a stomach ache, so her mom put her to bed without the usual wrestle time before bed with her dad. 
So after mom tucked her into bed, it was a few minutes later, and the little girl came to the top of the steps and hollered down to mom, Mom, can I talk with daddy? No, honey, said mom. Now get back in bed. Please, mommy. I said no, and that's final, said mom. And the little girl, with all the muster she could put, she said, I'm a very sick woman, and I need to speak with my pastor now. You know, it's like the teenager who said to his friend, I'm, I'm really worried. Dad slaves away at his job so I can have whatever I need and give me the chance to go to college. Mom works hard every day cooking and cleaning for me, taking care of me when I get sick. They spend every day of their lives working on my behalf, and I'm worried. The teenager's friend asked, what do you have to worry about? Sounds like you have it made. The teenager replied, I'm worried they may try to escape. The role of being a parent is not always easy. It's not always looked upon as the great job or task that it is. Sometimes it feels like a thankless job that's never finished. And being a good parent has never been more difficult than it is in our culture today. Adding to that challenge is the fact that many young parents today have not had the benefit of good parenting modeled before them themselves. Many have been victims of divorce themselves, raised in a single-parent home, or grown up in an environment where there was little, if any, godly training. So, consequently, our nation is filled with a generation of parents who think they know what to do, but they have very little idea of what it means to nourish their child spiritually. We need all the help that we can get. And we begin to see that it's only the Holy Spirit and His Word that can give us the direction we need. As good as parenting books are, as good as uh, mentors and counselors like Dr. Jo- James Dobson are, there's no substitute for the principles in God's Word that are timeless. So let's take a few minutes and look together at this passage of Scripture I had you turn to. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. It's one verse, but it's pregnant. It's full of meaning, of important instruction that is very relevant for us today. It says this, train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. This is a common passage, and it's probably more commonly misinterpreted or underinterpreted. The common interpretation goes something like this, be sure your child is in church at an early age. Teach him lots of Bible verses and definitely lots of hymns. Make sure he learns the Ten Commandments, a few prayers to give at mealtime and at bedtime. If possible, send him to Christian school, for sure, to Christian camp in the summer. Give him rules and regulations that you don't budge on, because you know, after all, everybody sows their wild oats at some point. But rest assured that when their hair grows gray, they'll come back to God. You can be assured that they will never turn from their salvation in Jesus Christ. Well, I would argue that that interpretation just doesn't square with what the original intent of this wise proverb gives us. Let's look at this first phrase of Proverbs 22.6. Train a child. The Hebrew word for train carries with it two images, two word pictures, if you will. The first is an intriguing action of a Hebrew midwife right after she assisted the mother in giving birth. She would take her finger and dip it into a bowl of grapes or dates and then take her finger and put it in the mouth of the child, teaching the child to suck and how to get nutrients. In this sense, to train a child means to create or to cultivate a hunger and thirst for nourishment. A hunger and thirst for nourishment in order that the child may be healthy and continue to grow. 
You see, we are to train our child by building their spirit. Dad, when's the last time that you've cultivated an atmosphere for your child to have a hunger and thirst for what nourishes their soul? It's not just what you force them to do. It's not just the external things. But are you cultivating an appetite for them to take in the very things of God? Train up a child by building their spirit. The second image also gives us the truth. It's about the mouth and the palate. But in this case, it refers not to a newborn baby, but to the mouth of a wild horse. The word train also describes a a bridle in the mouth to break a horse. So to train a child not only involves building their spirit and creating a hunger and thirst for the things of God, but it also involves training a child by breaking their will. It means teaching your child how to submit to authority. I want to come back to that in a few minutes, but it's important to recognize that both building the spirit and breaking the will are critical to training a child. That's the first part of this phrase of this truth that the Word of God gives us. Train a child. The second is this, in the way he should go. The NASB gets real close to the Hebrew translation here when it says, train up a child according to his way. A child who is properly trained is raised in keeping with his or her own way, not in our way, mom and dad. Some parents have the idea that our children come to us like pliable, soft clay, that we can push them and prod them and twist them and prick them and stamp on them in a one, two, three process, exactly what we want them to be, just like us. But that's not what God gives us. Children come to us from the womb with a prescribed set of characteristics and qualities, of bents, if you will. The Amplified Bible gets it right when it puts it this way, train up a child in keeping with his individual gift or bent. We see this illustrated time and again in Scripture. For example, the first children born to the first family in the Bible. Remember who it was? Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel were from the same family, but they couldn't be any more different. They were different as night and day. Abel was a lover. He was sensitive. He was pliable. Yet Cain was a fighter. He was stubborn. He was strong-willed. The two boys from the same womb were very different. Consider some examples we see in Scripture, like the first set of twins that's talked about, Jacob and Esau. They were twins, yet they couldn't have been any more different as well. Esau was rugged and strong and masculine. He was a hunter. He was hairy. He was the original outdoorsman. Jacob hung around the kitchen with his mom. He liked to cook more than hunt. Esau was a black and white kind of guy, and, and Jacob saw life in several shades of gray. By the way, Isaac preferred Esau, and Jacob was a mama's boy. How common is it for us to sometimes gravitate to one of our children who is like us, and without knowing it, we pour more of our life into them, showing some favoritism. We don't have to say it, but our our natural similarities cause that to happen, and we drive a wedge deeper in sibling rivalry or jealousy, and it doesn't help. That's what we see a problem when we don't take into account the, the gifts the characteristics, the bents that God has placed or God has allowed to take place in our children. It should have some kind of impact on how we parent them. Take note, every child has good bents or characteristic or traits that are given from God. 
Psalm 139, verse 16 affirms this. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God is saying he knew everything about every person he created before they were born. And he looks at you. He looks at your child and he says, I am thrilled with what I made. I look at you and, and I made you just the way I wanted you. Everything he has ordained before you, there are gifts, there are traits, there are bents inside of you, inside of your kids that God has placed there. To be a good parent, we need to learn to develop our children's good bents or good traits. The first one, it's not in your outline. It's not going to be on the PowerPoint. You can jot it down there underneath. Develop your child's good bents in that space off to the side. It's, it's this. Respect each child's uniqueness. Every child has their own uniqueness. Respect that uniqueness. Get to know your child. Observe how the Lord put them together. Celebrate how God has put them together. Second, avoid imposing your unfulfilled wishes on your child. We can recognize this on the ball field when a dad tries to live out his Major League Baseball dreams through his kids, telling them that they have to succeed, and we're not even sure if they enjoy the sport, but dad's going to live out his unfulfilled wishes through his kid. It may not be that blatant through a sport, but are you trying to live out your unfilled, fulfilled wishes through the life of your kid? See who they are, who God has created them to be. Bob Benson has observed, you don't raise kids, you raise carrots. It's not just like raising crops. You sponsor your children. Parents, don't dump your unresolved baggage on your kids. The only ultimate expectation any parent should have on their child is that they become all that God has created them to be. That leads to the last suggestion of how to develop your child's good bents to to. Fan the flame of what God has already started in them. And it's to teach your child to pray. I'm not talking about canned prayers. Now I lay me down to sleep. Rub-a-dub-dub. Thanks for the grub and all those things. I guess they're good when you're a toddler. But if that's all that we teach our kids of how to have toddler faith, what good are we as spiritual mentors in our own home? I'm talking about introducing your child to the possibility of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, it stands to reason that you cannot lead your child where you're not willing to go and where you have not been willing to grow yourself. Statistics tell us, Dad, that your child most likely, not 100% of the time, but most likely an overwhelming majority of children will pray like their father or their mother prays or less. What kind of model are you being for your children and the avenue of prayer, of talking with God, of hearing from God? Dad, do your kids ever observe you communicating with God? Well, I'm a quiet type. Well, good. Whisper your prayer and let your kids hear you whisper to God. Do you ever talk to your kids about your silent prayer before God? Do they have any idea that you pray? Or is it just the words you say so you can get to the dinner that you're hungry to eat? Or the words you say so you don't choke on your spit in your sleep at night? Is there any communication and relationship that you're passing on? You can develop your child's good bents or characteristics by teaching them to pray. Let your children see the difference that Jesus has made in you by communicating God's word. To them, written and living of what he has spoken to you. 
as we begin to see that every child has good bents, good characteristics, every child also has bad bents, bad traits inside of them. Psalm 51.5 says, Surely I have been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. The cold hard fact is that children are born with a bent towards evil. They may be sweet, adorable and cute, innocent at birth, but it isn't long before they demonstrate their own bent towards sin. Let's think about it. Nobody had to teach your child to do wrong. There may be some people who encourage them later on, but they were doing just fine doing wrong on their own. It's in every single person. That's what the Bible calls a sinful or carnal nature that every human being has in them as a member of the human race. We begin to see that your child, you yourself, has a bent towards sin and rebellion inside. I like what the Minnesota Crime Commission issued. This Crime Commission of Minnesota trying to speak about human nature, whether it was accidental or not, they got a theological truth. Nailed right on the head. Here's what this Minnesota Crime Commission wrote a few years back. Every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants, when he wants it, how he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toy, his uncle's watch. Go ahead and deny these things of the baby and he will seethe with rage and aggressiveness that would be murderous. If he wasn't so helpful, so helpless, rather, in his own age. Just these little bundles of joy are filled with selfishness and sin. And our job as parents is to address these bad bents, these bad traits. It means that all children, not just some, are born delinquent. Every single one of us. This is not necessarily a warm, fuzzy message on Father's Day, but it's an important message. We are to love our kids not only with the soft, tender love, but sometimes love is not only tender, it can be tough. Here's some practical ways that we can begin to correct our child's bad bents or bent towards sin. First, identify your child's sinfulness. A loving parent doesn't try to hide or rationalize away the sin of their child. This is so countercultural. In a world that says, hey, hey, look out for number one. Be your child's biggest advocate. The loving thing to do is never, ever, ever scold them. Don't spank them. Don't be harsh with them. Just give them everything they want. Make sure that they get a trophy out of everything in life. They get all the things they hope for. And there's time for that tender, compassionate love. But sometimes, as a parent, because we love them so deeply, there needs to be the tough love where we confront them, where we say, this is wrong. There is a consequence to this wrongdoing. You see, a loving parent doesn't hide or rationalize away this sin. They confront it. They help their child see that they need God's forgiveness. Your child will never discover God's love for them until they understand the deep forgiveness they need for their sinful action. Not only identify your child's sinfulness, but lead your child to Christ. There's only one cure for any of our bents towards sin. It's not in how hard we parent or how much we work, but it's in the Savior of Jesus Christ. 
Transferring the reality of the gospel of Jesus from your life to your children's life is your greatest responsibility as a parent. Dad, teaching your child the value of a dollar, as important as that is, is not your greatest responsibility as a dad. Teaching your children a strong work ethic, as valuable as that can be, is not the greatest responsibility you have. Teaching your kids to be a good citizen, to study hard, to give them the family trait, to give them that sense of humor, as good as that may be, it doesn't compare to the number one responsibility of passing on the gospel of Jesus Christ, lived out through your own obedience. Lead them to Jesus. Third, teach your child to respect authority. That sinful, selfish heart within your sweet little child will soon manifest itself in rebellion. Deal with it swiftly and directly when it occurs. The sooner your child learns to respect authority, the sooner they will learn to respect the authority that God has in their life. Dad, Mom, how are you doing with teaching your child to respect authority? Sometimes it's not just about what we say, it's about what we do. Carrie and I and Caden were at a park yesterday and Enjoying the sun for the first part of the day. And I I heard this dad call out to what looked to be his daughter about 50 yards away, screaming at her. He was obviously displeased with something that she did. Screaming at her to get over here right now. And he used a whole set of vocabulary that I not only would not use here, I wouldn't use anywhere. And just screaming at his child. And about 10 feet away was a mom with a whole family of kids around her, and she stands up and she begins to lay into this dad, who apparently is a stranger. And she says, don't yell at your kid like that. And he turns and tells her a few choice words, and she says, don't yell at those blankety-blankety kids with those blankety-blankety words. And I just kind of was dumbfounded and wanted to cover Caden's ears and say, well, this is kind of interesting. One parent is calling out the bad parenting of another by not parenting well to her own kids who are there. It's interesting how we want our kids to respect authority, but we want them to do what we say, not always do what we do. We can teach our child to respect authority when we submit to the God-given authority in our life, not just when we agree with them. Hey, friend, when you agree with your authority, that's not submission. That's like agreement. That's good. But real test of submitting to authority is when that God-given authority in your life leads you in a direction that is not against God's will, but it's not your first choice. And you say, you're my authority. I'm going to follow that. We're teaching our children to submit to authority, to respect authority. The third part of this verse is when he is old, he will not turn from it. Train up a child and the way he should go And when he is old, he will not turn from it. Contrary to popular opinion, this verse is not a promise of salvation, but rather a principle of life. I know I'm speaking today to some parents who are here that are spirit-filled, godly, God-honoring parents that have done their very best to pass on their faith to their kids. And for whatever reason, their children have exercised their free will to reject the truth. I do not believe that God is condemning you today, and I don't believe that you should condemn yourself. You see, when we begin to train up our children in the way of the Lord, it doesn't mean that they lose their free will. It means that the taste of following God will forever be in their memory 
and their experience. We begin to see what Gary Izzo writes in Growing Families Intentionally, what he observes to be very true. He says, he will not turn from it, that part of the verse, refers back to the entire training process. Solomon's challenge to godly parents can be wrapped up in this summary. When you initiate this godly training of your children, conforming to the nature God has created in them, their uniqueness, when he matures, the principles instilled within their character will become second nature to them. The promise of salvation is not so much implied as it is the promise that they will not forget what was taught to them of what salvation is all about. What is implied is the weight of the parental responsibility in training children. The seeds we plant today in our children's hearts, whether good or bad, will inevitably bear fruit at a future time. It's impossible for me to overstate this morning the importance of dads and moms to be spirit-filled, to be parents who convey the love of our Heavenly Father. Former President Teddy Roosevelt gives us some good words, reminding us that the growing social ills in our society then and now are not solved by more government programs, not by better schools, not primarily even through the church, but in the home where God desires to shape boys and girls to be men and women. Listen to the words of President Roosevelt as he addresses the first International Congress on the Welfare of Children many years ago. There are, ex- there are exceptional women, there are exceptional men who have other tasks to perform in addition to, not in substitution of, their task of motherhood or fatherhood. We can get along for the time being with an inferior quality of success in other lines, political or business or of any kind, because there are failings in such of those areas, and if that happens, we can make them up in the next generation. But if parents do not do their duty, there will either be no next generation, or worse yet, the next generation we would wish didn't even exist. In other words, we cannot as a nation, get along if we haven't the right kind of home life. Such a life is not only the supreme duty, but also the supreme reward of parenting. If that's wisdom from a president, how much more should the wisdom of God's Word resonate in our heart today? Dad, it is your divine calling to be the spiritual leader of your home. Mom, is it your divine calling to be a spiritual leader alongside your spouse in your home? I want to challenge that every man here today, you are called to be a spiritual father to somebody. Whether you have biological children or not, you can pass on the faith to somebody else. Training up the children in the way that they should go, and they will not be able to turn from the taste of God that they've experienced from your leadership. As we get ready to close this morning, I want to invite all of our dads, in fact, all of our men, just to stand. I'm not going to have you come forward or move. Just stand right where you're at. If you're a man, stand. If you're not sure if you're a man, turn to the person next to you, ask them, they will tell you. You guys are men right here. All of our males. I'm looking at you, men. You are men. Stand up. Good, good. All of our males, stand up. All of our men. I want to challenge you today to accept the call from God not to be the perfect 
father, the perfect male role model, the perfect man in the sense that you never make a mistake, but to be teleos, perfect in what you are created to do, to be transparent of your perfect heavenly father. The best way for you to grow 10 feet tall as a dad on Father's Day, as a man on this day that celebrates the, the positive influence that men have in our society, is to be right with God and transparent enough to let others get in on what He's doing in your life. Men, I want to pray for you and for myself. And don't just listen to me pray. I want to invite you to pray with me in your mind as I pray out loud, as we ask God to give us the strength to lead the way He's called us to. Heavenly Father, we celebrate not just dads on earth today. On this Lord's Day, we celebrate you, our perfect Heavenly Father. And in the word that you've given to us in Proverbs, it reminds us of the high calling of every dad, I believe of every man who can be a spiritual father of sorts to someone around them who's looking up to them. May we train them up in the way that they should go, that they'll never turn from that training. God, let us dip our finger in the good things of you and and, and give an appetite, cultivate an appetite for somebody around us of what it tastes like to be nourished by the things of God. Let us put the bridle of correction in a mouth to steer away from the things that are not of God. Not because we've got it right perfectly ourselves without error, but because we are doing our best to be obedient to you. Father, give these men, give myself your strength. Give us the courage to obey with reckless abandon, to pull back the curtain of our life and let others in on the transforming work that you're doing in us. Thank you, Father, for these men. Amen. Amen.